You can see it right there, an 84-year-old hostage wheeled to freedom. Right now, negotiators are working to extend the pause in the Israel-Hamas war as we wait to see if two American women are on the list of hostages set to be released today. Breaking overnight, an American Osprey aircraft crashing off the coast of Japan with six people on board. One person is dead, according to the Japanese Coast Guard. Search crews looking for the others who were on the board. Plus, Liz Cheney is naming names, calling out former colleagues for enabling Donald Trump. Here, which congressman she says called the former president Orange Jesus. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good morning and welcome. And right now, negotiators are racing to extend that truce between Israel and Hamas. Today could potentially be the final day if they fail. Hamas released another round of hostages yesterday with more to come today. The White House saying it remains hopeful two Americans will be among the women and children released. And new this morning, the family of the youngest Israeli hostage, now 10-month-old Kafir Bibas, tells CNN they have been notified that the baby and his four-year-old brother, Ariel, will not be freed today. Hamas allowed an outside journalist to witness yesterday's hostage handover in Gaza. In the videos and the photos, you can see an 84-year-old grandmother in a wheelchair a masked gunman with a rifle slung over his shoulder, wheeling her to the Red Cross convoy as a crowd cheers and records on their phones. Other images show heavily armed gunmen escorting a 17-year-old girl, Mia Leinberg, as she clutches her dog in her arms. Mia was released with her mother. This is a photo of them, you see, calling their family for the first time after crossing back into Israel. Phil also has some brand new reporting this morning on the behind-the-scenes efforts at the White House to free additional hostages. Phil, what more are you learning? Well, we start this morning, Erica, with new behind-the-scenes reporting on that intensive effort. It has been underway. It centers on three crucial pillars, according to four senior administration officials. Pillars that are being worked on on a literal hour-by-hour basis, they say. Number one, getting the hostages home. That has been underway in that process, surging humanitarian aid to Gaza. And then what comes next, both in the near-term, intensive, and officials say blunt and candid discussions on the next phase of Israel's combat operations, and longer-term efforts in the region to lay the groundwork for a post-conflict Gaza. We start this morning with team coverage. Oren Lieberman is in Tel Aviv. Arlette Sines is at the White House for us. Oren, to start with you, what details do we have, what new details do we have about the exchange that's set for today? So it should take place in just a few hours here if it follows the the pace we've seen over the course of the last several days. Now that has shifted by a few hours earlier or later, but crucially, we have no indications that it's off for today, which means on this sixth day, what as of right now is the final day of the truce agreement, the, the release of 10 Israeli women and children is set to proceed. After that, there will be a release of 30 Palestinian women and children from Israeli prisons, and that as of right now, marks the end of the truce. There are, as you point out, intense diplomatic efforts involving, of course, Hamas, Israel, Qatar, Egypt, and the U.S. to see if it's possible to continue that truce and keep it going. But it requires the release of more women and children. There is a belief that Hamas is holding enough to extend this for at least a few days, perhaps two or three. The immediate focus is on getting it to go another 24 hours, and that's where the effort is right now. But they're already looking at the future beyond that. Israel has promised very much to restart its military campaign in Gaza, even stronger than before, as the White House tries to caution Israel away from the same sort of devastating campaign in northern Gaza from carrying out that same sort of effort 
in southern Gaza. So as of right now, the, uh, the hostage exchange, the hostage release set for a few hours from now, we'll obviously keep an eye on that. And then the movement around trying to extend this truce even further, it remains a big question. A key point, Phil, if you want to extend it beyond women and children, that may take an entirely new set of negotiations and a new set of parameters. Women and children have been released, one Israeli for three Palestinian. If you're going to talk about releasing elderly men as well as soldiers, that may be an entirely different set of negotiations. And a very complicated set of negotiations. I want to drill in a little bit on those negotiations. As you know, in just a few hours, we expect that final transfer of hostages, uh, at least as of now, to begin. Then it's a matter of counting down to when this truce actually ends. What are the challenges to secure at least a short-term extension here? So one challenge is that Hamas isn't holding all of the hostages, which means it needs to get them from other organizations and militant groups in Gaza to be able to carry out these uh, hostage releases. That was one of the big points at the beginning. Hamas needs a pause in the fighting and no drones overhead so it can move the hostages around. For example, Israel has said that the family of 10-month-old Kfir Bibas, the youngest hostage in captivity, is not actually held by Hamas. And that is a challenge in and of itself. It also means the hostages are held in different locations. Some have said through their families they were held underground, some above ground. Finding them, getting them to a point, and then getting the terms around that release, it remains an enormous challenge. We have seen this truce over the course of the past several days on thin ice more than once as they try to extend it. We'll see how thin that ice gets, how fragile this agreement gets in the final hours, at least as the agreement was explained to us, how it's set to play out. We'll see the hostage release tonight, the release of uh, Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jail, and then the truce itself, if it's not extended, will expire early tomorrow morning. Yeah, the, the complications are so numerous here. Oren, thank you. The major diplomatic breakthrough to secure the humanitarian pause and hostage exchange has really brought into sharp focus just how critical President Biden, the Biden administration, have been throughout. In conversations with senior administration officials, they point to more than a dozen calls with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, at least three calls with the Emir of Qatar, the central intermediary with Hamas's political wing, including a critical call. Multiple officials tell me unlocked a major roadblock to hostage releases on Saturday. There are also at least three calls with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, which helped structure the surge in humanitarian aid and those hostage transfers. Arlette signs over to you on the North Lawn. You know, for all of the moving parts here, American officials say they've kept a steadfast focus on those two American women that have not been released yet. Is there a belief they could be released today? Well, Phil, the White House is hopeful that those two American will, women will be released, but they have been unable to offer any assurances just yet. The White House and, and President Biden have been pushing around the clock to try to secure the release of these uh, hostages. Now, uh, these two women who the U.S. has yet to name, uh, it's unclear where exactly in Gaza they're being held. Administration officials have been quite frank in saying that they don't necessarily know the conditions or whereabouts of these hostages, but that they urge Hamas uh, to ensure that they are released. There's also the fact that there are some um, other groups besides Hamas who are holding some of these hostages. But the White House also said that so far they are not concerned. They, they don't believe that Hamas is intentionally holding on to American women. They uh, believe that this is something that can still move forward and they are hopeful that it could potentially come today. And if it doesn't, uh, all eyes will be on whether there will be an extension of a truce. As President Biden has said that he will not stop until all of these hostages are back home. 
Yeah, it's such a good point. If you want to understand the intensive nature of this, just look at who's in the region or headed to the region right now. CIA Director Bill Burns has been uh, in Qatar. Anthony Blinken set to head to Israel this week. Also learning this morning, Roger Carson's the top hostage negotiator, will be heading to Israel today as well. A huge effort underway. Oren Arlette, thank you guys very much. Erica? Well, Nikki Haley getting an infusion of Coke cash, but can a billionaire Republican's war chest help her topple Donald Trump? And breaking overnight, a U.S. military Osprey crashes off the coast of Japan. Who helped save one of the people on board? Breaking overnight, one person is dead after a U.S. military Osprey aircraft carrying six people crashed off the coast of Japan's Yakushima Island. That's according to the Japanese Coast Guard. CNN's Paula Hancock is live in Seoul, South Korea, with more for us this morning. Uh, what more do we know about the aircraft and what happened here, Paula? Well, Erica, at this point, there is uh, no cause known as to what exactly happened uh, with this aircraft. The information we do have is from Japan's Coast Guard. They say they received information about the crash just before 3 p.m. local time, uh, and they immediately sent out a patrol boat and an aircraft to scour the area. They say that they saw the wreckage of what was believed to be a U.S. military aircraft. Now, it's just after eight o'clock now in the evening. It is dark, but that search operation does continue. A number of patrol boats are now looking for uh, the other five that were on board uh, this Osprey. Now, we know from officials, uh, the Coast Guard saying that they believe they received an emergency call for an emergency landing uh, at uh, one point during the afternoon. Uh, now, as I say, the cause of the crash is unknown. There have been a number of crashes of these uh, Ospreys over the past two years. In fact, just three months ago, three U.S. Marines were killed when an Osprey crashed in Australia during a, a training exercise. And also just last year, five U.S. Marines were killed uh, during a training uh, accident uh, in California. Just before that, four U.S. service members uh, lost their lives during a NATO uh, training exercise when an Osprey crashed in Norway. Uh, so clearly that will be looked at very closely. But the focus now is where exactly and what has happened to the other five on board. As we know, uh, one has been confirmed to have lost their lives uh, at this point, but Japan's Coast Guard saying uh, that they are continuing the search into the night. Erica. Paula, appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, well, this picture, which we're about to show you, of Kevin McCarthy's post-January 6th, there's the one, the post-January 6th visit to Mar-a-Lago. You may recall it sparked some intense backlash even among Republicans. According to Liz Cheney, so why did he do it? You'll have to stick around for that. And look at this. The national Christmas tree, no match for the gusty winds in Washington, D.C. last night. The 40-foot Norway spruce toppled at the ellipse near the White House. More than 10 million people are under freeze alerts this morning. Eric and I had a very scientific anecdotal mm -hmm. discussion we did. that it's cold. Meteorologist Eric Van Dam is tracking that cold weather and actually knows the science here. What's the latest, Eric? <laughs> Paychecks in the mail. You got it, Phil, right <laughs> on the dot. Uh, listen, single-digit, absolutely bitter temperatures felt right now across the Great Lakes region with freeze warnings below freezing all the way down to Gainesville, Florida. The lake effect snow machine still pumping out some hefty snow bands downwind of Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. 
This is what it looked like overnight and yesterday in Buffalo, New York, where they've received over a foot of snow. The good news is we turn off the lake effect snow taps quickly, focus our attention on the potential of a wet weekend for the eastern seaboard with the potential for severe weather for Texas tomorrow. And this is also going to usher in some warmer temperatures across the eastern half of the country. Speaking of warmth, the Florida Keys not looking that bad. Wish you were here. CNN This Morning will be right back. I have been underestimated in everything I've ever done. And it's a blessing because it makes me scrappy. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley there on the campaign trail in New Hampshire yesterday. Uh, one person who's not underestimating her, billionaire conservative activist Charles Koch. The Koch Network now throwing its money and influence behind Haley. Of course, the question this morning, will that be enough to reshape the race with just seven weeks to go until the Iowa caucuses? Joining us now, civil rights attorney Maya Wiley, former deputy chief of staff to Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Maura Gillespie, and New York Times national political reporter Shane Goldmacher. So as we, as we look at this, Shane, to you first, especially after this reporting, I mean, is this enough? Are there signs that point to it being enough to disrupt things? I mean, I think the short answer is no, there aren't signs enough to, to disrupt Donald Trump. Um, but I think this does have a big disruption in the campaign and in the primary, which is there's a primary inside the primary, which is Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley trying to be the one anti-Trump figure. And this is a really big part of that. Uh, this is a lot of money and an important group coming in and saying, we think that at this point in time, that candidate, it's Nikki Haley. It's no longer Ron DeSantis. And, and that's a disruption. Now, does that, either of them ever get a real one-on-one -on -one with Trump? Can they catch up to Trump? That's a different question entirely. Maura, as somebody who's been in Republican politics, look, I think the Koch brothers became kind of the Democratic boogeyman. There's a ton of money, as Shane was noting. My question right now is, it's a grassroots organization that has a ton of volunteers with right. it, uh, AFP, plus the money. Mm -hmm. What kind of juice do they have in this primary? Can they, in Ron DeSantis, can they elevate Haley to be the clear number two? I think what it shows us is that they're putting their money and their team and their volunteers behind her because, they, again, what they started telling us earlier this year was anyone but Trump. It can't be Trump. And so they're really doubling down on that and pointing out that Ron DeSantis is also not the, not the choice for Republicans. And so looking at the field that's left, they chose Nikki Haley, who has the most momentum. And we have seen that her poll numbers have increased, especially after each Republican debate, which there's another one coming up. Uh, they're putting their money behind that. And I think it's telling as well that, you know, in Iowa, Kim Reynolds, she put her support behind DeSantis. Both these scenarios did not choose Trump. And I think that's really telling for what people who have some say in the party are letting us all know that we have to move beyond this because but it's forward-looking. Isn't that the whole issue? They picked two different people, therefore making, uh, kind of making it more difficult for the anti-Trump vote to the extent it exists. But it's important to have choices. If, if we continue to follow along the Trump method, we, we will lose. And also our democracy will lose. Our constitution will lose. And I think people are recognizing that within the party, the real dangers that are at play here, and they're looking for any other avenue but Trump. And, and part of the memo, right, was that one of the reasons we think Nikki Haley is the person to put our money behind is because they believe she can bring in some of those independents, some of those moderates who have been turned off by Donald Trump. How are Democrats, Maya, looking at this this morning? Yes, we recognize the state of where things are in terms of the power of Donald Trump and where he sits this morning. But is Nikki Haley seen as a real threat? 
I, I'm going to go with Shane here. I think this is about the honorable mention in this campaign. Uh, I think it is interesting, and one thing that's particularly striking from the standpoint of uh, the statement that they made about the extremism that a Donald Trump represents and how Nikki Haley is the counter to that kind of flies in the face of their history of actually supporting getting Donald Trump not just elected, including, um, you know, some of the work that they helped to fund in Wisconsin in 2016 and the, the ads that helped support him by going after Hillary Clinton. But, you know, when you go back to the origins of why Donald Trump has been so dangerous for democracy, his lies about uh, the election in 2020, you know, this all goes back to the attack on voting rights that, frankly, was a signature of the Koch brothers that began, you know, after 2008 and the efforts to make it significantly more difficult for Americans lawfully allowed to vote to vote. And that's the origins of the great denial and the big lie. Um, and that's something that we owe, frankly, to the Koch brothers and to Alex. So the roots of this very danger to democracy is essentially coming from the same folks that are now saying, oh, wait, now democracy's in danger. Maya, to, to pull a piece of, of what you said at the top, on, on the statement and talking about extremism, what's striking, I think Moore gets at this a lot uh, when we talk as well, is there are a lot of Republicans who feel that way. There's no question about it. And yet, take a listen to, I think, one of those Republicans and who he'd support between Trump or Biden. So if it comes down to Trump and Biden, which it most likely will, you're going to vote for Trump then? I am a Republican. Okay, so you will vote for Trump. Okay. It's not going to be Trump and Biden. I'm telling you. So, you so think here's it'll be another here. Republican and Biden. So I will say this, and, and I mean this quite sincerely: the party yeah. that chooses to move on from Trump or Biden first wins. Shane to his first statement, and I think this is so. This isn't just a one-off quote. This isn't just him saying something that's good sound. This is at the root of everything. If you're not willing to say, if it's not Trump, I'm going to the Democrats. Doesn't that undercut what Moore is talking about here, coalescing behind anybody else? I mean, this is just an ongoing challenge for a whole slew of Republicans, right? You have uh, the former Attorney General Bill Barr, who said that Donald Trump was, you know, not a good president and maybe a danger to this country. But if presented a choice between Bill Barr and a Democrat, well, you're, uh, between Donald Trump and a Democrat, he might go back with Donald Trump again. Uh, look, the Koch brothers are actually doing something, I think, pretty notable here, which is they are swallowing some major disagreements with Nikki Haley on a slew of foreign policy issues in which they disagree with her. She's a hawk and they are not. And yet they're saying we're going to put that aside for the domestic issues where we think that Donald Trump is bad for the country. And I think it speaks to a bigger issue here is that people, voters, do not want to have another matchup between Biden and Trump. People are very disinterested and they are unmotivated and unmotivated voters going to benefit Donald Trump. So they're looking to get somebody else in there and doing so by putting their money behind Nikki Haley. All right, guys, stay with us. Shane, Maura, Maya, stick around. We'll be coming back to you shortly. An extension of that truce between Israel and Hamas could come at any moment today. And we have new reporting on the diplomatic mission by the White House to save more hostages. Plus, Donald Trump bringing his legal fight over the 2020 election back to life. What he wants from the Justice Department next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there. Some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Happening now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking in Brussels. He is expected to travel to Israel as well this week as negotiators push for another truce extension. We're going to continue to monitor this um, and we'll let you know uh, what is coming out of it. Also, we want to point out, Phil has some new reporting this morning from behind the scenes on those intensive efforts by the White House when it comes to these negotiations, Phil. Yeah, the scale, obviously, it has been intensive since October 7th, the wake of October 7th. But in the wake of a, I think, pretty significant diplomatic victory to get hostages released, the work that has continued over the course of the last several days has been critical, really centering on three crucial pillars, according to senior administration officials. And those pillars are being worked on on an almost hour-by-hour basis, from the president on down to his team, getting hostages home, surging humanitarian aid into Gaza. And then what comes next? Both the near term, the intensive, and officials say both blunt and candid discussions on the next phase of Israel's combat operations and more quiet, longer-term efforts in the region to lay the groundwork for a post-conflict Gaza. Joining us now is Robin Wright, a contributing writer at The New Yorker and a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Robin, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start with, I think, the third piece of this, the third pillar, if you will, in terms of near-term combat operations when a truce ends, whenever that is. I have been struck over the course of the last couple of days in talking with administration officials how very candid they are about how What Israel does next is immensely critical in terms of their operations in the South. They simply cannot repeat what they've done in the North. Do you think they have the leverage to have an effect here? Uh, Probably a little bit. The problem is the Israelis are hell-bent at the moment on eliminating Hamas. And the United States is trying to say, look, you have a just cause in, in taking on Hamas, but you really need to think about what happens down the road. And... Israel faces the same kind of questions that the United States did in Iraq and Afghanistan. What's the exit game? What comes next? Who rules? And Israel has not provided any of those answers yet. The United States is trying to urge Israel to think about a two-state solution, to try to get this moment to bring together all the elements that have been building uh, better relations with the Arab world, symbolized by relations with Saudi Arabia, uh, creating a two-state solution. The problem is the mood in Israel right now is does not support a two-state solution. And that seems, frankly, to me, um, having covered this for a half century now, further away than at any time since 1993 during the Oslo Accords, and maybe even since 1948 when this crisis or conflict began. 
There's the support in Israel. There's also the, the wider global position when it comes to public opinion. So as we talk about what's happening behind the scenes, that is also coming into play. And there was some talk when this pause started about how public opinion may or may not shift in this moment. What are you seeing over the last few days and what does that say moving forward for Israel? Well, we've seen this conflict, which pits a country the size of New Jersey against an area the size of Philadelphia, have a rippling effect across the world. And different parts of the world are getting very different coverage, perceptions of what's happening on the ground. And that's led to a, a deep fissure. Uh, and it makes it more difficult, I think, for the United States and the West to um, not, you know, not do more to try to find a political resolution or provide humanitarian aid or try to get some balance in this conflict. At this point, seven more than seven weeks in, uh, the death rate is about 10 Palestinians for every Israeli killed on October uh, 7th. And that's having a, uh, an impact. It's having, we're seeing it already in the polls that, in, that uh, for President Biden uh, in a whole election a year from now. So yes, I think this become, we're at a real turning point right now in terms of Israeli military strategy. Um, the hostage negotiations now get into the men, and that's going to, I think, play out much longer than issues over the women and children. Just much more complicated as of today. Robert, what's your sense? You know, the administration defense when they face political attacks from within their own coalition is tell us what the alternative could have been here. U.S. diplomacy is why hostages are being released. U.S. diplomacy is why aid is now being surged into Gaza. Not nearly enough, they say, but a significant amount more than had been over the course of the weeks prior. Was there an alternative here? Well, I mean, you can go back in history and say, look, there have been a lot of uh, peace efforts that one side or the other didn't accept and could have prevented this. The problem is we've gotten to a point where it's now an existential conflict. Hamas wants to destroy Israel. Israel wants to destroy Hamas. And neither is likely to achieve that goal. And one of the great problems is we don't know what winning is or the perceptions of what winning is are very different. And we also don't, we have different uh, interpretations of what defeat is. It's very hard for Israel to defeat the idea of resistance or opposition. Uh, and Hamas has symbolized that more than ever. And, and is actually seeing a surge in support in the West Bank, which people are forgetting that there's a lot of violence playing out in the West Bank as well. And the danger is that even if Israel is successful against Hamas, the West Bank, which has been the main interlocutor with Israel, uh, finds itself, finds the government there finds it very difficult to deal with Israel down the road. And that's where a political resolution has to come. Robin Wright, always appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank you. Well, can you guess who called Donald Trump, quote, orange Jesus? I have some thoughts. Liz Cheney spills the secret in her new book, and she reveals what the new House Speaker did for Trump behind closed doors. Plus, could George Santos be hours away from losing his job? New information this morning on when the next vote to expel the congressman will happen. We are confronting a domestic threat that we have never faced before. And that is a former president who is attempting to unravel the foundations of our constitutional republic. I think Donald Trump is the single most dangerous threat we face. That is, of course, former Congresswoman Liz Cheney blasting Donald Trump's bid for a second term in office. This morning, 
She's eviscerating him, frankly, and his supporters in a new book that CNN has exclusively obtained. That new book, Oath and Honor, comes out December 5th. Cheney also condemns the actions of her former colleagues following the election, writing, quote, so strong is the lure of power that men and women who had once seemed reasonable and responsible were suddenly willing to violate their oath to the Constitution out of political expediency and loyalty to Donald Trump. And Phil, um, she is naming names. You know, I don't think we should be too surprised about that. You just listen to the sound in the lead in here. But Cheney certainly pulled no punches, punches here, calling out Republicans, quote, cowardice in the wake of the 2020 election for their support of then-President Donald Trump, who she labels, quote, the most dangerous man to ever inhabit the Oval Office. Now, one particular target of her ire, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, whom she says told her Trump knew his election claims were bogus. She says just two days after the election, McCarthy told her that Trump, quote, knows it's over. He needs to go through all the stages of grief. But later that night, McCarthy went on Fox News and pushed Trump's lies anyway. President Trump won this election, so everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. Do not be, do not be silent about this. We cannot allow this to happen before our very eyes. The public versus the private, always interesting. But don't worry, it wasn't just McCarthy who fell in line with Trump and was criticized. Cheney also calls out Jim Jordan, now Speaker Mike Johnson, Mitch McConnell, other powerful Republicans who continued to fall in line with Trump's effort or remain silent, even when they knew it was a farce. She says Jim Jordan, quote, didn't think the rules mattered when it came to Trump's legal efforts. Quote, the thing that matters is winning. And as Republicans were encouraged to sign their names on electoral objection vote sheets, Representative Mark Green uttered, quote, the things we do for orange Jesus. That answers the tease question from before the break. She lays out her fears ahead of January 6th, but she, has, she says nothing prepared her for the violence of that day or for what Kevin McCarthy did afterwards. What was that? Well, I think everybody remembers and will probably never forget this famous photo just three weeks after January 6th when McCarthy flew down to Mar-a-Lago to show fealty to Trump. It's a photo, Cheney claims, she didn't actually believe was real when she first saw it. She actually talked to McCarthy about it. What the hell, she asked him. McCarthy told her, they're really worried. Speaking of Trump's team, Trump's not eating, so they asked me to come see him. Cheney replied, what, you went to Mar-a-Lago because Trump's not eating? McCarthy said, yes, he's really depressed. Now, it's worth noting, she is not the only Republican whose eyebrows were raised by the visit. Some, uh, she writes, some mocked him circulating the Trump-McCarthy photo along with the clip from Jerry Maguire, where Tom Cruise tells Renee Zellweger, you complete me. No word on the goldfish from Jerry Maguire as well. Now back with us to discuss more Gillespie, Shane Goldmacher, and Maya Wiley. More, I want to start with you because you worked so closely, you worked on the January 6th committee with Liz Cheney. Was there anything in this book that surprised you? Not just about naming names, but in terms of what she disclosed about Republican members. Well, from what I'm obviously very excited to read it next week when it comes out. But uh, no, none of this surprised me because the January 6th committee laid out all the ways in which Donald Trump knew he lost. So now that we're even talking about these legal battles that he is still con you know, trying to convince us that he did not lose the 2020 election, uh, we're seeing Liz Cheney again once remind us that he very well knew. Uh, and this Kevin McCarthy revelation, this conversation is it's embarrassing. It's, it's really embarrassing for him uh, because not only was that photo just shocking to so many of us, um, but just shows how, like she said, the, the fealty that they felt to Donald Trump, the loyalty, and what they're willing to sacrifice as far as any respect for themselves to go down there and do that. And 
it just doesn't show good leadership, quite frankly. My, based on what we know in these in these excerpts that we have so far uh, ahead of this book, what strikes me every time when more of these details come out or we're reminded of what happened is the people who Liz Cheney likely most wants to reach, Maya, what are the chances that she can reach them? You know, that's, that is, I think, the big question here. And I think we're going to learn more about how this reinforces so much of what we're seeing in the indictments that Donald Trump is facing uh, and the fact that we're going to see a lot more evidence come out at trial about Again, it's going to reinforce what the January 6th committee already said and found, but it is additional evidence, and it's happening in multiple jurisdictions. And so I think what we're going to see is that the American public is going to continue to be not just reminded, but be given more window and insight into just what it means to have lost 40 lawsuits that were challenging the outcome of the 2020 election, not a shred of evidence that supported the denials. All of these things that also reinforce what we're seeing in Congress right now, which is the weaponization of Congress to try to advance some of the conspiracy theories that have already been debunked. Um, those are things that are very dangerous to democracy, but also means that the American public are not getting their needs met. And all of that's going to continue to play out, I think, as we as we go into this 24 election cycle, and hopefully in a healthy and good way, because we're looking at facts and not fiction. Shane, what's always been striking to me about Cheney is she is a rock-ribbed conservative Republican. That has not changed on a policy basis. She is in a completely different stratosphere than where Nancy Pelosi is or where Chuck Schumer is or where moderate Democrats are on this issue. And yet the Republican Party, you know, she issues a very explicit uh, warning saying that they're going to Republicans in the current Congress will do what Donald Trump asks no matter what. I'm very sad that America can no longer count on a body of elected Republicans to protect our repu republic. You've reported so much on this. Why? Why are Republicans in that place? I mean, why is a tough question to answer, but I, I do think she's diagnosing the issue, which is that the party has shifted, right? The rock rib conservative principles that she had are not the main principles defining the Republican Party today. It's what where do they? you it's where do you stand with Donald Trump? And he's shifted on some of those core issues. Trade has flipped, right? It was a free trade party when Cheney came about. It is no longer a free trade party. But I do think that with Trump, it's not just the policies. It's do you stand with him and are you willing to fight the left? And, you know, the word fighter just comes up when you talk to voters and when you're traveling and on the campaign trail. Everyone wants to be a fighter, right? And they want to be a fighter for what Trump stands for and not necessarily for conservative principles. Look, Mike Pence was one of the most conservative members of Congress. He ran for president this time and got no traction. He's out of the race, despite having been the vice president under Donald Trump. Yeah, that's such a good point. Real quick. Well, just because I think he focused on policy. And unfortunately, a large swath of the Republican voters who vote in primaries aren't concerned about policy. They're concerned about personality, and they like Donald Trump for the reasons that you just mentioned. Shane, Maura, Maya, we appreciate it. Stick around with us. Uh, we just have some new information on which hostages could be released today. Uh, what the family of the youngest hostage, just 10 months old, told us moments ago. And today, former First Lady Rosalind Carter will be laid to rest in Plains, Georgia, in the private service. This follows Tuesday's tribute service, where a husband of 77 years, former President Jimmy Carter, was wheeled into the church. He did not speak, but their daughter, Amy, shared a letter he wrote to her mom early in their marriage. My darling, Every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I returned to discover just how wonderful you are. 
While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow, Jimmy. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, those 2020 election lies, it seems they just won't die. New reporting, former presidents, President Trump's legal team, they're now requesting a trove of classified documents from the Justice Department seeking to relitigate the 2020 election, arguing Trump had good reason to believe the election was fraudulent and that, quote, his concerns regarding fraud during the 2020 election, rather than knowingly false or criminal, were plausible and maintained in good faith. Our panel is back with us. Um, so when we look at this, um, and Maya, let's start with you on this one. Um, you know, they were uh, his concerns. Uh, they were not knowingly false or criminal. They were possible and maintained in good faith. Where does that go? Do you see it going? Not very far when you have so much evidence demonstrating that that's simply not the case. There was so much evidence. You know, his own campaign said, look, you're not winning this. You should not go out and announce your victory. Um, this, is a, this is a case that January 6th committee had already uncovered a lot of these facts. But this is why we're seeing so many indictments, uh, including Georgia, uh, as well as the federal indictment in D.C. that's saying, yeah, no, actually, we're looking at election crimes, uh, fraud. This is about... Uh, zero evidence. But again, you know, what it really comes down to is an effort to say something that either party, any party in this country would have normally said if the norms of democracy had held is, no, you know, once the voters have spoken, once you've lost 40 lawsuits, once you have Republican governors in states like Georgia, Nevada saying, no, you actually lost, once you have elected officials who are Republican in Arizona saying, no, that's not true, usually it's done. Uh, that was not the case here as well as having violence. So it's very difficult to see how this becomes a real credible defense, but it's also incredibly difficult to see why we have a political system that's not standing up, uh, as, as we've heard from Liz Cheney, that says we have a de democratic norms in our politics as well as in our laws that require us to act to say, yeah, that's a road too far. You know, more to that point, you know, beyond the fact that this filing doesn't seem to be maintained in good faith, um, to quote from it, uh, on some of the, take the other side of it, good, let's relitigate all of this. Is that not? No. We're going to have the same outcome. Why is that not? Okay, fine. Let's do it. Because I see it as Trump's attempt to gin up the base again, to get them angry. And maybe he's seeing a dip in his poll numbers. Maybe he's seeing a dip in his fundraising because all of his money is going to legal, legal fees. So this is an opportunity for him to remind his base that he actually won the 2020 election and to 
reinvigorate their anger. And to me, that is a scary thing to be proposed with, is that, that that's the goal here. Again, it also calls into question his competency. We've been talking a lot about that, I think, just in terms of Biden versus Trump, the competency there, the age issue, age question. His relitigating this, again, after being told by knowing it, uh, being told by members of his own team within the White House, his former Trump officials telling him that he had lost uh, by doing this again, should we not question his competency again? You know, in terms of those comments, uh, President Biden at a fundraiser, off-camera comments last night was talking about Donald Trump noting he hasn't stopped losing, uh, bringing up uh, his comments about vermin. What's interesting is you talk about competency, right? We have these conversations. Does Joe Biden need to be saying more of those things on camera and saying more of those things publicly? I mean, what we've seen for, for years with Joe Biden is he sort of tests things out behind mm -hmm. with donors where there are reporters there, but there's not cameras. And eventually it spills out. There's not really two different Joe Bidens. What he's saying behind closed doors, he ends up saying in front of the cameras eventually. So his campaign's already ramping up their Trump focus and their Trump rhetoric. I'll say I think you make a really interesting point, though, which is when you look at the legal, this is a legal filing, it's really hard to differentiate between a Trump legal filing mm -hmm. and a Trump political document at this point, right? The campaign is part of his legal strategy. The legal strategy is part of his campaign, right? He, these are completely intertwined. If he is to stay out of prison, winning the presidency is one of the ways to do so. And so really, it's really important to think of these as two issues that really are one and the same. Maya, on that point to the last word, is that a plausible legal strategy? Be intertwined, kind of commingling the politics and the legal here. It's a political strategy. It is not a legal strategy. The law is the law. It says what it says. The facts speak for themselves. The evidence will build and mount, mount where we've already seen it. But I do think it goes back to this issue of whether or not even social media platforms are allowing uh, debunked theories where there's plenty of evidence to show that they're not true, all the ways in which it's permeating to reinforce what becomes very dangerous to democracy, including 12 million Americans who said they'll support violence for Donald Trump. This is very much an existential threat that requires everyone, no matter your party, to say, stop it already. Maya Wiley, Shane Goldmacher, Maura Gillespie, great to have all of you with us this morning. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Officials in Doha are in agreement. They want to work to extend the current pause. Ten more Israelis, two Thai citizens, are back home. President Biden has already achieved something very important, a pause. Should these children be used as bargaining chips? Our work is not done until everyone is out of Gaza. Liz Cheney's blasting members of her party for enabling Trump, revealing that one calls him, quote, orange Jesus. Liz Cheney knows all of these players intimately well. She calls them enablers, collaborators. Liz Cheney names names, and she has the receipts. A surging Nikki Haley picks up a major endorsement. Americans for Prosperity, a Charles Koch group, they're backing Nikki Haley as they believe having the best chance to defeat Donald Trump. If you will join with me in this fight, I promise you that our best days are yet to come. Well, good Wednesday morning. Right now, the final hours of the truce between Israel and Hamas are ticking away. And as we speak, negotiators in the White House are racing to extend it. Hamas released another round of hostages yesterday with more to come today. The White House saying it remains hopeful two Americans will be among the women and children let go today. Now, we just heard from Secretary of State Antony Blinken at NATO headquarters as he prepares to head into the war zone and travel once again to Israel. 
we'd like to see the pause extended because what it has enabled, first and foremost, is hostages being released. It's also enabled us to uh, to surge humanitarian assistance into the people of Gaza who so desperately need it. New this morning, the family of the youngest Israeli hostage, 10-month-old Kafir Bibas, telling CNN they have been notified that the baby and his four-year-old brother Ariel will not be freed today. Hamas did allow an outside journalist to witness yesterday's hostage handover in Gaza. And in the video and the photos, you see right here an 84-year-old grandmother in a wheelchair, a masked gunman with a rifle slung over his shoulder, wheels her to the Red Cross convoy as a crowd cheers and records what's happening on their phones. Other images show heavily armed gunmen escorting a 17-year-old girl. Uh, Mia Leinberg, as she clutches her dog in her arms, she was released with her mother. This next photo, well, this is the two of them calling their family for the first time after crossing back into Israel. Orrin Lieberman is joining us live this morning with more. So moments ago, Orrin, we just heard from Secretary of State Blinken, says the next few days will focus on extending that pause in Gaza. Where do the negotiations stand at this hour? Erica, there are two countdowns running right now. The first is the countdown until the release of Israeli hostages, another 10 women and children. That should happen now in a few hours. A couple times over the course of the past six days, it's happened a bit later, a bit earlier. Regardless, it's moving forward and we expect to see that play out, at least as far as we understand now. There have been no major roadblocks. We haven't seen any reports of exchanges of fire in northern Gaza like we saw yesterday. So that's the first element we're looking at, and that will then soon be followed by the release of Palestinian prisoners, women and children from Israeli prisons. The bigger question, though, is what happens after that? A truce that has lasted for five days and today expected to expire early tomorrow morning if there isn't some sort of agreement to continue it. And that is what Secretary of State Antony Blinken talked about at NATO. Oren, thank you. Well, as we continue to, to follow this, Phil has some new reporting. So you're reporting from overnight about specifically what's happening behind the scenes here with the Biden administration. Yeah, it's it, what's been fascinating in, in talking with senior administration officials. It's been no secret that the U.S. has played a central role mm -hmm. in trying to mediate, trying to negotiate, uh, trying to manage to some degree the conflict since the terror attack on October 7th. But what has been most interesting in my reporting is the intensive nature of really three critical components, three pillars, if you will, of what they've been working on since this humanitarian pause began. The first is, of course, getting the hostages mm -hmm. home. Blinken, the Secretary Blinken, talking about trying to extend that truce. At the same time, surging humanitarian aid. They are very aware of the criticism. They're also very aware of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, trying to really almost double, triple, quadruple how much aid is going in, and then maintain that even when combat operations continue. And then it's what comes next. That, those combat operations, they know there will be an end to the truce. Those near-term intensive and officials say blunt, candid discussions about that next phase of Israel's combat operations, that's critical. But so too, the longer-term efforts that have been more quiet, but also intensive in the region to lay the groundwork for what a post-conflict Gaza will look like. That has been underway. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken, he just talked about that last point moments ago. With regard to, to two states, look, I think we've been very clear from well before October 7th, in fact, from the first day of this administration, that we believe that that is the only path to enduring uh, peace, to enduring security, uh, to the preservation of Israel as a strong, secure, democratic and Jewish state, and Palestinians having uh, their legitimate uh, aspirations 
uh, for uh, a state and self-determination met. And Erica, I think what what's striking about what you hear there from Secretary of State, it echoes what President Biden has said. The uh, not just durability of the idea of mm-hmm. a two state solution is very much in question right now, particularly with uh, the current structure of the Israeli government. But when you talk to administration officials, they say behind the scenes in trips to the region, talking about uh, specifically the normalization efforts with Saudi Arabia and why that they believe could set some type of groundwork. Mm-hmm. They think there are options there. Now, Israel's not laid out what it wants to see next. To some degree, they've almost undercut the U.S. Netanyahu saying the Palestinian Authority mm-hmm. should not uh, be a key component of this. But those conversations are happening. They know there has to be a next step at some point. Right. And that, yeah, such important, such important points. Well, meantime, senior Democratic senators are really struggling to reach a consensus on whether to condition aid to Israel on demands to ease the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Several of them saying it's unnecessary, that it is not America's place to micromanage Israel's actions. Meantime, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says the idea is ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. Uh, Our relationship with Israel is the closest national security relationship we have with any country in the world. And to condition, in effect, our assistance to Israel on their meeting our standards, it seems to me, is totally unnecessary. So all of this coming, of course, as Republicans insist that border security must be included with any aid package. CNN's Lauren Fox is live in Washington this morning with the very latest for us. So um, there are these calls for conditions from at least three Senate Democrats. Um, Where do things stand within the party this morning? There was a vigorous debate, I am told, from senators who were in the Democratic lunch yesterday over this issue of whether or not they should require that conditions be a part of any more aid to Israel. And the Democratic Party is really divided over this issue. You have people like Peter Welch, senators like Chris Murphy, and, of course, independent Senator Bernie Sanders, who are calling for more conditions on Israel. And they all have different ideas about what the scope of those conditions should be if it has to do with the direct fighting in the wake of any uh, continued ceasefire in Israel. There's also sort of this pause question of how long that is going to go on. You have a lot of Democrats who are arguing that that should continue. So there's really a vast variety of views right now. But there's also many senators who say there shouldn't be any conditions. Here are two of them. I don't think it's necessary. I think that uh, President Biden's been very uh, influential in Israel's policies during this conflict. So uh, I don't, Israel's an ally, a friend, so no. We uh, should stand behind Israel. I don't think we should second guess them. I don't think we should set timelines or parameters on how they go about um, addressing uh, the murders, the rapes, the beheadings, the torture uh, that I observed. And what Senator Tillis is referring to there is more than 40 minutes of footage that roughly 40 senators watched yesterday of the attack that unfolded on October 7th. And you saw there Senator Tillis saying he always thought that more aid should be provided to Israel without conditions. But especially after watching that footage, he said that really sort of cemented his view of the issue. So it's a broader debate with 
in the Democratic Party, it's also clear that many Republicans are not going to support it. And it's always important to keep in mind that any aid package is going to have to pass out of the Republican-controlled House of Representatives as well. So while Democrats want to have this debate, while they're going to continue to have conversations with the White House about this, it's important to keep in mind that Republican dynamic in the House of Representatives. Yeah, such an important point. Lauren, appreciate it. Thank you. Well, money from the deep pockets of wealthy donors. It's the race within the race, what every 2024 candidate wants, and it's what won just scored in a big way. Nikki Haley winning one of the biggest endorsements of the campaign so far on Tuesday when the Koch-backed Americans for Prosperity Group announced its backing the former South Carolina governor's bid for the White House. Now, it all comes as she kicks off a two-day march through the swing state of New Hampshire, where she's been on the rise. And that is, of course, where we find CNN's Jeff Zeleny in lovely Manchester, New Hampshire. Jeff, look, this was timed perfectly. Max impact in the midst of a very clear rise. How does Haley build on this momentum? Hey, good morning, Phil. I mean, look, as you said, this is no ordinary endorsement. It comes with a pledge for millions of dollars in uh, ad spending, perhaps even more important than that, millions of conservative activists as part of that key Koch network. Now, this is not going to be a game ender. Donald Trump still is in firm control of this primary campaign. But Nikki Haley hopes it's the beginning of a game changer. Nikki Haley on the move hoping to capitalize on a golden endorsement in the Republican presidential race. Trump is pretty much even with Biden. On a good day, he might be two points up. In every poll, we beat Biden by 10 to 13 points. One of the nation's most powerful conservative grassroots organizations, financed by billionaire Charles Koch, has crowned Haley as its choice to try and dethrone Donald Trump as the overwhelming Republican frontrunner and unseat President Biden in the White House. Joe Biden and Donald Trump had their chance. They can't fix what's broken. The question for Haley is whether she'll ever get the chance and move beyond the race for second place. The highly coveted endorsement from Americans for Prosperity Action is the the latest attempt by some GOP heavy hitters to urge voters to coalesce around a Trump alternative. The group is pledging to spend millions on television ads and more. Yet it's far from certain how many Republicans are actually looking for one. Right now, Trump has my vote. We met Wayne Graycheck walking into a Haley rally on Monday in South Carolina. Her rise intrigues him, and he's open to her candidacy, yet far from sold. I want to look at all candidates, you know, to see who has, who's going to finally get my vote, but I am strongly leaning towards Trump. That sentiment underscores one of Haley's biggest challenges, navigating a Trump tightrope by appealing to Republicans clamoring for anyone but Trump, even as she works to win over true Trump we believers. Get, we got to find somebody other than Trump. Elaine Myers told us she voted for Trump twice, but believes he can't win next year. A vote for him is going to be a vote for Biden. And I hope that doesn't happen. And that's why I'm voting for Nikki. Yet she's hardly the only candidate. Haley is locked in an increasingly bitter battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, particularly in Iowa, where he's won several big endorsements of his own. They'll face off again next week at the fourth Republican debate. The stage is getting smaller. When the stage gets smaller, our chances get bigger. The views of Haley, a former U.N. ambassador, are now coming under closer view. Her hawkish foreign policy stands in sharp contrast with the rising isolationist strains in her party. Now you have D.C. saying, do we support Ukraine or do we support Israel? Do we support Israel or do we support 
closing the border. Don't let them tell you that because that is a false premise. She also faces other potential roadblocks, including Chris Christie's candidacy in New Hampshire. He's trying to win over some of the same independent and moderate Republican voters. Haley makes clear a split ticket benefits Trump above all. We are now in second place in Iowa, second place in New Hampshire, and second place in South Carolina. We just have one more fellow we got to catch up to. There's no doubt the road ahead for Nikki Haley is, is still filled with many obstacles, but this endorsement, she believes, gives her momentum going forward. They also hope it's a magnet for other big-name donors. But Phil and Erica, this morning here in New Hampshire, the same question exists that has throughout the primary. Are enough Republicans looking for a Trump alternative, or are they content with the real thing? Jeff Salony Force in Manchester. Thank you. CNN this morning has new reporting on the challenges the White House is facing in locating the nine unaccounted for Americans in Gaza. A look at the administration's plan moving forward. That's next. Also, CNN has just learned the family of the youngest Israeli hostage. Ten-month-old Kafir Beavis will not be on the list of hostages released today. Their relatives, if you know, have been desperately pleading for the release of Kafir and his four-year-old brother, as well as their parents. His great-uncle, Kafir's great-uncle, joins us next. Are these the enemies of Hamas? Are these the enemies of anyone? Should these children be used as bargaining chips? No, they shouldn't. This is the simple answer. They shouldn't be used as bargaining chips for any political or religious or, or whatever reason. There is no justification for using them like this. So we just, we just, want, we just want them back, really. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In just a few hours, we expect to see what could be the final transfer of hostages from Hamas under the current terms of the truce agreement with Israel. Negotiators on both sides, though, are racing against the clock to extend that truce. Even as they do, though, there is a fair amount of uncertainty lingering about the hostages themselves, including exactly how many they are, how how and where they're being held, who's holding them. Phil has some brand new reporting this morning on the behind-the-scenes efforts at the White House to free more hostages. Phil, what more are you learning this morning? You know, Erica, you're hitting on critical points here about why this has been so complicated and why this has been so arduous of a process over the course of the last several days. It is not as simple as just putting lists together and taking people out in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. There are issues locating hostages. There are issues of knowing which groups are holding hostages. The Qataris, who are serving as primary intermediaries, having difficulty just getting verified lists of how many hostages. The Israelis putting numbers on how many hostages are there. The Americans very cautious about that, and there is a reason. They have a lot of intelligence on some of those hostages, according to senior administrations, on officials, on others. They don't know anything at all. It is just one of the major complicating factors. These are the missing Americans still believed to be held by Hamas. Now, among Inside this group, there are two women who are expected and have been a critical focus of administration officials in negotiations over the course of the last several days. They want those two women 
out as soon as today. There's still hope those two women could come out as soon as today. Now, of these nine, there are also seven males. Obviously, the focus of the negotiations and the exchanges up to this point have been women and children. Now, it's worth noting to track back a couple of weeks to get a sense of how this all came together. There was a pilot agreement of sorts that got the first two Americans released, Judith and Natalie Renan. There has also been a third American release, somebody the president was intensively focused on, now four-year-old Abigail Adam. But her story is actually one that gives a sense of the complexity here. She was not in the initial tranche of hostages exchanged. That, I'm told, was not actually a surprise for administration officials. And here's why, and this gets at all of the different variables at play. Administration official told me that one of the issues that they've been facing is in the initial stage of hostage releases, the primary group actually was located in the South. They're very cautious about naming where they were, how they actually got this information. But the initial group of hostages coming out in those first couple of days were located in the South. Abigail, while they won't say where exactly she was, she was not. And I think this is an issue. As well as getting verified lists, it's where these hostages are, who they are located with, if they are in groups, if their family units are together, but in particular, if they have to come from anywhere in here. Now, what you'll see when you look up here in the red and the yellow is the scale of the damage, is the scale of what's transpired in the North, in Gaza, since the start of military operations. That has been the primary focus, both of the air campaign, but also the ground operation as well. If hostages are in that area, moving them around, getting them to the south and all the way to the Rafah crossing area has been a critical focus and also a very complicated one, making things a little bit more complicated. Part of the agreement was that drone operations have to stop for a significant portion of time uh, each day. That limits the intelligence officials can get. Again, there are so many different variables here, Erica, that make this so complicated. So when officials say they don't actually know where people are, how many people are there, or they've been very cautious about whether or not the two American women will get out at any point in this initial stage, they're not just hiding information. There are so many uncertainties here that make this complex. Every single night this truce has been in place, yeah. this has been an effort that has been underway and one that will continue as officials continue to try and push this truce forward. And that really lays it out so well because there has been confusion when we heard initially they don't know where all the hostages are. Understandably, many people thought, how could you not know? Right. Makes very clear why and how they Different may groups not know. as well, not Different just groups. Hamas. It's everything about this is complicated. Yeah, it certainly is. Phil appreciated. Um, we also want to let you know that CNN has learned overnight the youngest Israeli hostage, 10-month-old Kafir Bebas, is not expected to be released today. That's according uh, to his family. Kafir and his four-year-old brother, Ariel, seen here in this family video. Uh, those faces, you cannot forget them. Their bright red hair you've seen in the pictures, too. They were taken by Hamas on October 7th. Their parents, Shiri and Yarden, are believed to have been kidnapped as well. That was 54 days ago. Now, it's important to note, as Phil was just saying, the Israeli military uh, saying that the Biabas family are among the hostages who are not currently being held by Hamas. And that, of course, is complicating the efforts to bring them home. Joining us now is Maurice Schneider. He is the great uncle of those two little boys, Kafir and Ariel. Their mother, Shiri, is his niece. Uh, Mr. Schneider, thank you for being with us this morning. I know you told me you wake up every morning and you look at your phone immediately for some news. The news that they are not to be released today is obviously not what you wanted to see this morning. How is your family holding up? Uh, thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, the, the family that I see in Israel is not a family that I always knew. We have a very happy family, very united. And what's happening now 
It's yeah, everybody is sad, everybody nobody smiles, everybody's worried about the rest of uh, our family. You're showing the pictures that Shiri, Yarden, Fear, Ariel, beautiful faces. They how can you imagine that those pictures you're seeing right now have been hostages? What human being would say, yes, a nine-month-old baby and a four-year-old boy can be hostages of war. That is something that we cannot think of. It's unthinkable. And Hamas saying that they don't know where they are is ridiculous. They should know where they are. They are mm-hmm. the ones that broke the fence. They are the ones that took them, their pictures, when they take Shiri and the two and the two babies, and now they're saying that they don't know where they are, that is a lie. That is insane. And if they really don't know where they are, they have the power to find out. Go, okay, go ahead and look for them. Mm-hmm. The former defense minister Danny Nunn told my colleague Caitlin Collins last night that um, Hamas is trading or even selling hostages in between different gangs in Gaza. Do you believe that's what may have happened? With your family? The, 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 I'm sorry, repeat the question again. Um, got, the, uh, the former defense minister, Danny Dinan, told my colleague Caitlin Collins last night um, that Hamas was trading or selling hostages in between gangs in Gaza. The, 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 that's right. They, they're trading. That, that's what we heard, that they, they traded them. They are in different hands. Uh, so they should be pressured by... The, the, the Biden administration, by the Egyptian uh, president, Sisi, by Qatar to say enough is enough. This should not be happening. We, the, uh, where, where are they? Mm-hmm. Show us a picture that they're alive. Show, uh, us, show us a picture that, that the kids are being fed correctly. They're being taken care of. We don't even know if that family is, is even alive. That That is the... That's the most painful thing here, that you wake up in the morning. I wake up, and that's when my nightmare starts. I have a nightmare when I am awake. We, the whole family, we have the same issue. And you're not getting any confirmation, as you point out. Um, Shiri's sister-in-law said yesterday, uh, maybe that this is part of, in her words, a psychological war against us. My hope is that they don't see them as a trophy. Is that a concern for you? That's exactly what it is. That that is exactly what it is for them. Is is for them? It's a joke when they are seeing us begging for the release of these little kids. When they see seeing us, how desperate we are. When they see seeing the big billboards showing Ariel and fear, they saying, "Hooray! We are doing what we want to do. We want to make the world uh, suffer." It's not only it's not only us suffering. It's the whole world suffering. It's all Israel suffering. How, because why are we suffering? Because we are human beings and we don't understand how this is possible. I think you're right. So many people, it is incomprehensible that a 10-month-old, that a 4-year-old, and that so many innocent people are being held. Uh, Mr. Schneider, appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Um, and we will continue, of course, to follow this story and hope for some good news for you and your family very soon. Thank you very much. Well, Washington, a renewed push to expel Republican Congressman George Santos as a growing number of Republicans say he's toast. His response? I don't care. 
And CNN has exclusively obtained Liz Cheney's new book in which she slams her former Republican colleagues for their unwavering loyalty to Donald Trump. She is naming those colleagues and she's bringing receipts. read the report, I think that says it all. They've determined that um, he used his personal funds uh, for personal reasons. He went to luxury boutiques, he spent it very inappropriately, he stole from his donors, uh, and he should be removed from Congress. I think George Santos is toast. A growing number of House Republicans, you heard them there, saying they plan to vote to expel Congressman George Santos. That vote expected tomorrow. Now, Santos has survived previous attempts to oust him, but there is growing momentum for this latest effort following a damning House Ethics Committee investigation. That report showing evidence that the New York congressman used campaign funds for items like personal travel, cosmetics, and even OnlyFans. Santos, well, he remains defiant. I will not be resigning. Are we to now assume that one is no longer innocent until proven guilty, and they are in fact guilty until proven innocent? Or are we now to simply assume that because somebody doesn't like you, they get to throw you out of your job? Well, joining us now for his weekly check-in breakfast with Burchett, Republican Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee. Uh, Congressman, last month, George Santos was seen coming out of your office holding a baby. Uh, when a reporter yeah. asked Santos if it was his baby, he replied, quote, not yet. A lot of questions about that, and we'll get to the serious stuff in a minute. But just to start, did we ever figure out the origin of the baby? I believe it was uh, one of George's um, uh, folks that works with him, a lady in his office, his child, from what I understood. It was obviously not mine. I have one daughter. She's back in Tennessee, and, uh, and my wife and I are very proud of her. I appreciate that as a father of four very much. On the, on the actual serious questions, the uh, expulsion vote, we expect it to come tomorrow. There is clear momentum in the wake of the Ethics Committee report. Will you vote to expel? I don't know yet. I keep going back to that old thing we've got here of, 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 uh, you know, of a court system. Do we, um, do we throw somebody out that hasn't been convicted? I think it sets a precedent maybe that we're not willing to do right now. Um, but I suspect the momentum's there. I see the public opinion. You know, I told George he ought, to, he ought to resign at the last minute and we carry him off the House floor like a scene from Rudy and he can sort of pose like George Washington crossing the Potomac. So I don't, you know, I know he, he, likes, he likes the show, but honestly, I, I mean, we all know he's, he, he's leaving and, um, and I do believe in due process. So that's kind of where I'm hung up on. And, and there's several Democrats who are as well. It's kind of a paradoxical Rudy uh, who was carried off for accomplishment. This would seem to be the opposite uh, to some degree. Yeah. I do want to ask you, we always talk about legislative issues, in particular appropriations. Uh, the, the Speaker of the House, who you support, uh, has been more open, I think, to the idea of, of putting together Ukraine and Israel aid uh, so long as it has a border component. Those negotiations very much underway, particularly in the Senate. Do you see an outcome there and would you support it? No, I haven't supported any funding for Ukraine. You know, we're, we're supporting a, a war in a corrupt country against a, a dictator, obviously, um, Putin. I mean, their GDP is somewhere between France and, and Canada right now. And uh, we, we've, developed, we've basically given them over 114 billion unchecked dollars. And we told Trump he couldn't have four billion to, to fix the wall. And they said that would break us. So, uh, and I've talked to so many people from over there who said the supply chain issues and just the the immense stealing that's going on of our tax dollars. 
or it gave me some great pause there. And I wish they wouldn't tie it together, but I realize the urgency there um, with our own border. If you look at the, the just the vast numbers, the millions of people that have come over our border unchecked, and some of them on our terrorist watch list, obviously. So and border provisions uh, for you, it, the, the border provisions wouldn't be enough to shift your uh, opposition. No, it wouldn't. I think they ought to separate the bills, honestly. I mean, if they're good, they're good. Let's do it. Don't tie them to Israel. Don't tie them to the border. Don't tie anything. Just put individual bills, Ukraine, Israel, the border, and, um, and vote on those individually. I mean, we're up here. What are we doing? We're naming post offices most of the time. We, that's mostly what we do in Congress. And then we pontificate to you all and, and run home and try to raise money. I think we ought to just stay here and do our job and work something out that's, that's feasible and workable with the American public. Now, the, the base, our base, definitely does not support any more money for Ukraine. I mean, yeah. folks are having trouble. We, we're not, we've got veterans living under bridges, for goodness sakes. Well, we're not, yeah. And you, you look at New York City, where the homeless are taking over the motels and the, and the New York people that are in, in a bad way are living on subways. So, you know, where are our priorities in this country? Well, I mean, I think it's a, a part of the rationale of trying to bring all this stuff together in a single bill, trying to cobble together 218 in the House sure. uh, and 60 in the Senate. We've, we've got a lot more to get to in the weeks ahead, including deadlines in January and February on appropriations, talking about long-term fiscal issues as well. Congressman Tim Burchett, we appreciate the clarification on the baby, uh, but more importantly, yeah. on the issues of the day. Thanks so much, as always. Thank you, brother. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. You as well, sir. At least one person is dead after U.S. military aircraft crashed off the coast of Japan. Uh, several crew members were on board. What Japan's Coast Guard is now saying about that crash just ahead. And new demands from Trump lawyers in his attempts to prove the 2020 election was stolen. A look at his team's new strategy. We're following breaking news this morning that at least one person has been found dead after a U.S. military Osprey aircraft carrying six people crashed off the coast of Japan's Yakushima Island. That's according to the Japanese Coast Guard. Now, Japan further is saying the crash happened after it received a request from the U.S. military for an emergency landing. It's the latest crash involving an Osprey aircraft. Experts say they are generally safe to fly, but have had a history of mechanical issues and numerous accidents reported over the years. Well, negotiations are underway for a second extension in the truce between Israel and Hamas. CIA Director Bill Burns visited Doha on Tuesday for meetings with Qatari officials, as well as his Israeli and Egyptian counterparts. He's there to push for a broader hostage deal that would expand beyond the current women and children, according to a source familiar with the talks. CNN is also learning that Burns will attempt to expand those talks to include the men who are being held, in addition to male and female Israeli soldiers. The deal would include extending that temporary pause in fighting. Joining us now, CNN political and foreign policy analyst Brock Ravid. He's also political and foreign policy reporter for Axios. Brock, always good to have you with us. Um, and I understand you're hearing a little bit more about where things stand in terms of the hostages set to be released today. What new information do you have? Good morning. Um, first, there's, um, again, I want to, to be uh, careful here because nothing is done until it's done. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the last few days how we had expectations for things <clears throat> and then it did not materialize. But I think there are good signs that maybe one American citizen will be released today. Uh, again, it is still not final. It's mm -hmm. final only when the Red Cross gives those people to the IDF. But they are very good signs that this might might happen today. It's it's it would be a huge development. One, the Biden administration has been keenly focused on. Brock, the 
The dynamics of the negotiations for a continuation of the pause or an extension of the pause, um, everything is happening behind the scenes. It's really tough to pin down where everyone is. What's your sense of the plausibility of an extension? So I think when it comes to an extension of another few days until, you know, you um, exhaust all the nine days of the pause that were, you know, agreed upon in principle a few days ago, I think that's going to happen. That's pretty clear to me. Both sides have an interest. Uh, but I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. And I think that all the talk about some sort of a new deal are still premature. Uh, the Israelis made clear yesterday in Qatar during the talks that they will not discuss any further deals on hostages until all the women and children are released. And there are at least between 30 to 40 women and children still in Gaza. So I think we will have to see what happens in the next three, four days. And only then we can start talking about further deals. Is there a sense that they will, in fact, be able to get all of those 30 to 40 released? I think uh, they I think there's a good chance to get uh, most of them. Uh, th there are several problems with specific cases, like, mm -hmm. for example, uh, the Bivas family, uh, mother and two small children, one of them, Kfir Bivas, only 10 months old, that Hamas claims it doesn't have them. The Israelis claim Hamas has given this family to another militia in Gaza and that he knows very well where they are. And I think this is why the Israelis are telling Hamas through the mediators that it will not discuss any further deals until all the women and children are out. This is an attempt to press Hamas to release this family. Barack, as, as talks about an extension continue, there are also U.S. officials have been very candid about whenever uh, combat operations continue, uh, they want uh, and have been telling uh, Israeli, their Israeli counterparts that in the South, operations must be much different than they were in the North, primarily because of how many people, uh, refugees have moved toward that area because of what happened in the North. What kind of effect do you think that would have on Israeli officials and their planning? I think that the, the, there already has been a, um, an effect on, on Israeli planning. Uh, the IDF already approved its plans for southern Gaza, but I think that there is some sort of a review uh, that's been taking place in the last few days because the Israelis realize that uh, if they want to operate in southern Gaza, it has to be very different than what they did in northern Gaza. The situation is completely different there, especially that they are the ones who asked a million Palestinians to move from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, and they cannot really move them again. So I think we will see a much different uh, mode of operation, more uh, specific, more targeted raids, even though... You know, in such a dense area, I'm not even sure such a thing is possible. Yeah, it's such an important point. Barack Ravid, a belated welcome to the CNN family. A day late. We are uh, all better for Thank having you, so you on our team. Thank you. Nice to make it official. Well, Liz Cheney calling out some of her Republican colleagues in her new book, accusing them of enabling former President Trump. One congressman even called Trump, quote, orange Jesus. So there's that. Uh, Hunter Biden offering to testify publicly in front of the House Oversight Committee why the chairman of that committee rejected the offer. They have said for an entire year all of these things that Hunter has done and try to link that to the president. They've got no evidence doing that. The evidence is so overwhelming on Hunter Biden. Bring him to the hearing room and call his bluff. 
Well, this morning, we're learning more about how former President Trump plans to defend himself in the Justice Department's election subversion trial. A new court filing shows Trump plans to argue he had good reason to believe the election was fraudulent and that, quote, his concerns regarding fraud during the 2020 election, rather than, quote, knowingly false or criminal, were plausible and maintained in good faith. Joining us now, Timadiah Ganga-Williams, who served as a senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee. He's currently uh, a partner at Selendigay and Ellsberg. I, lo- I have lots of thoughts about lots of things. But on the legal side, they lost how many dozens of court challenges here? Uh, the election clearly was not fraudulent or stolen, and many people told Trump that. How do you make this case if you're a Trump lawyer? Well, I think... Speaking for the filing, I think it's completely baseless. I mean, this is a complete red herring. He's trying to get documents that have nothing to do to the question of whether or not he's in fact guilty here, whether he had a criminal intent here. I think what he's trying to do, though, is, one, give work to Jack Smith. He's asking for documents that are all across the U.S. government, from the intelligence agencies, the Department of Justice, and he's basically saying that if you find these documents, it could help me prove my case. But I think what the Trump defense lawyer is trying to do here is to say, I didn't have criminal intent if I'm I'm the former president. I didn't intend to do something criminal because in my own head, my subjective mind thought I was doing something that was was legal. That is not a defense here. And what I mean by that is that you can think subjectively that the election was stolen. It doesn't mean you get to storm the Capitol, for example. And that's a difference. If you're engaging in something that you believe to be illegal, even if you have good intentions, that's still a crime. And I think that distinction here is going to be really important. It's going to be fascinating to watch this. We also want to get your take. The Supreme Court is set to hear today a case which the Atlantic said it could destroy. The case that could destroy the government is how they label it. This involves the SEC, right? And basically this was brought by a right-wing activist, a conservative radio talk show host, um, who says the SEC overreached, essentially, when they came to him and said, hey, you're not doing business the right way. Could this case really destroy the government? And if so, why? Well, I think it has potentially massive implications for what we call the administrative state. So when you think of agencies that make rules and regulations that govern the environment, that govern the stock market, all of those are administrative agencies. And what this case is challenging is whether or not Congress can delegate authority to those states to do exactly what they do, which is decide uh, rules and regulations on all kinds of aspects of the economy. So what's dangerous here is that there's been a multi-decade effort, uh, frankly, on the conservative right, led by, for example, the Federal Society, to undermine the administrative state, to say that Congress cannot delegate authority to those agencies. The danger here is that if the court were to find that that delegation was impermissible, those agencies lose a lot of power. That means, for example, the SEC won't be able to regulate the stock market in the current fashion it can. For example, the EPA may not be able to regulate the, uh, the, the environmental issues the way it currently can. And what happens that is that it then relies on Congress to basically pass laws about every single thing. And we know Congress is deadlocked. So if Congress isn't passing additional uh, laws to regulate all aspects of the economy, and if the uh, if the Supreme Court says that these agencies are uh, have impermissible use of power and can't act, you're going to have a stalemate here where potentially large swaths of our economy aren't being regulated because no one can act. And that's a real danger here. Can I just say, though, and you've worked on Capitol Hill, the ambiguity is the point. Kicking it to the agencies has been the point. That has been a multi-decade effort by both parties 
to find a way to reach deals and agreement, Republicans and Democrats. So I guess my question is, this is how Congress does business. This undercuts both parties and their legislative accomplishments for years and years and years. And that's the intent, you think? I think that's exactly the intent. And it's been openly discussed in the, in the legal forums for decades, right? This way it's set up now has been happening since the New Deal. It's way the economy operates. But if this were to happen here, we know Congress won't act. And what's going to happen is a stalemate. And frankly, for a lot of people, that's the goal. What a mess. Truly. Yes. Um, great to see you this morning, Tim Dow. Thank Good you. Good to see you. Negotiations now underway to extend the truce between Israel and Hamas. At the center of those talks is the government of Qatar. Of Qatar. We're going to ask a Qatari official directly for an update on where these negotiations stand this morning. And Nikki Haley scoring a major endorsement from the Koch Network. Could the billionaire's war chest be enough to overtake former President Trump? We'll discuss next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We'd like to see the pause extended because what it has enabled, first and foremost, is hostages being released. It's also enabled us to, uh, to surge humanitarian assistance into the people of Gaza who so desperately need it. That was Secretary of State Antony Blinken earlier this morning. He's getting ready to head to Israel right now. The final hours of the truce between Israel and Hamas are ticking away and intense negotiations are underway to extend that truce. Hamas is set to release more hostages today after handing over another group of women and children yesterday. And yesterday in Gaza, we saw gunmen with rifles slung over their shoulders hand over an 84-year-old woman in a wheelchair as a crowd cheered and recorded with their cell phones. We also saw them release a 17-year-old girl clutching her dog in her arms. And new this morning, the family of the youngest Israeli hostage, 10-month-old Kafir Bibas, telling CNN they have been notified that the baby, his four-year-old brother Ariel as well, will not be among the hostages freed today. Uh, this is the latest breakdown of the hostages who are believed to still be in Gaza. This morning, Israeli officials telling CNN uh, they believe there is still a total of 161 people being held captive, and a large majority of them are men. Four are children under the age of 18. And there are 10 elderly hostages who are aged 75 and older. A large majority of these hostages are Israeli, including some dual nationals. Now, the White House says nine Americans are believed to be held in Gaza, and the U.S. remains hopeful two American women could be released today. The only American released so far under this truce is four-year-old Abigail Adan. Caitlin Collins joins us live in Tel Aviv. Caitlin, the negotiations, they are continuing right now. Do we have any update on whether there could be an extension here? We don't. We are still waiting to see what they decide. Everyone seems to kind of have coalesced around the idea that there will be an extension, but, but it's really not certain until they have a formal agreement. And so far, we have not gotten word of that. Part of that, I think, is because Israel said they wanted to make sure they got through day six, which, of course, is today, as we are now just hours away from this expiring before they agreed to, to an extension to see how tonight goes, because it has been very day by day. But really, the big question here right now is what happens on day seven? Is there going to be a continuation in this pause? And how long could that go on for? I've heard from Israeli officials that they do believe when it comes to women and children, there are still enough being held that this part of the agreement could go on for several more days. 
But we do know from our sources that there was a meeting in Doha yesterday, including the CIA director, about what this next deal could potentially look like. And Israel had said, you know, we're not ready to come to a new agreement yet until we finished this part of the agreement for women and children, which, of course, we know has not been fulfilled yet. But what they are talking about and what the CIA director in particular was pushing for was broadening the category to include elderly men, other men who are being held, and potentially IDF soldiers. So it is, you know, essentially the consensus here that IDF soldiers would be a much higher price than what they have had to do for women and, and children, whether that's a question of how many more Palestinian prisoners do they have to release in order to get that. Those are all still outstanding issues that we do not have the firm details on. But of course, all of this, all these negotiations, every single turn that they take, it is of grave importance to these families here who are waiting for word on what is going to happen to their loved ones. And we have heard from the Bebas family, and they say that, yeah, they told me that 10-month-old Kafir Bebas and four-year-old Ariel Bebas, including their parents, are not on the list of hostages to be released today on day six. And just to speak to the anguish that these families are feeling every day when they get that call that it's not going to be their loved ones who are on the list, I want you to listen to a cousin of the Bebas family, Alan Kishet, in this interview, an incredibly emotional interview that he had with me yesterday. 53 days they're going through this nightmare and they, it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that anyone can let, let this keep going, that a baby and, and, and a four years old with his, with his mother, they shouldn't be kept like this. It's, it's inhumane, it's so scary, it really is. Just, we can't get, we can't let it go on. Just think about it. If, if this was your child, would you want them to be in terrorist hands in captivity? Even not seeing them for 53 days is just, is, is, is so hard. Like, are these the enemies of Hamas? Are these the enemies of anyone? Could, could, should these children be used as bargaining chips? The, it, no, they shouldn't. This is the simple answer. They shouldn't be used as bargaining chips for any political or religious or, or whatever reason. There is no justification for using them like this. So we just we just want we just want them back, really. You can hear the pain in his voice as he is talking and his concern for for ten month old Kafir who still is on baby formula. He was not even eating solid foods when he was kidnapped by Hamas, and they're worried that he could starve to death, even if he is being taken care of. Uh, and I got a statement from Alan overnight. I want to read it to you because it's important. And he said that they officially know that they will not be part of this release on day six here today. He said, quote, we want to make sure that everyone understands that they're in dire conditions and are in real danger to develop irreversible damage in this state. We demand the Red Cross do its duty, fight for its right to access, provide emergency health support and report that their status. We also want to send a message to President Biden. Please speak with us and help save their lives. Now, these are typically two people, two children, certainly at least. We also know their mother is being held. That would be part of this group that is supposed to be being able to be released. But here's the concern, and that is that the IDF says they, that Hamas has said they don't have them in their control, that they are in control of another group in Gaza. Obviously, that is just speaks to, you know, how complicated all of this is, Phil and Erica. Yeah, the scale of the complexity with all the different variables, and yet, Caitlin, to your interview, 
the personal here matters as we talk about the diplomacy and next steps. Caitlin Collins, stay with us. We're going to check back with you in, in a bit. Joining us now to discuss is CNN Senior Global Affairs Analyst, Bianca Goldriga, CNN Political Analyst, Ested Herndon, and the writer of the Very Serious Newsletter and host of the Very Serious Podcast, Josh Barrow. Bianca, I want to start with the interview, which was uh, heart-wrenching uh, to watch uh, that Caitlin just showed. And the question is, how could there not be a continuation? How could there not be an extension of the ongoing truce, assuming everything goes according to plan today? Well, and the Israeli government's position is that the, the onus is on Hamas. And it's in Hamas's interest now to keep this pause going because, of course, they can regroup. Hamas's perspective is, you know, we're trying to find these hostages, so that's what we're using this time for. That's not how Israel is interpreting this. But, of course, these are their residents. These are their citizens. And they want them home as well. So Hamas saying one thing. I think the Mossad chief is trying to push in Qatar that uh, Hamas does know how to get in touch with Islamic Jihad or whatever other groups are holding these children. And they're just not pushing enough to get their release sooner because they think this is leverage for them. And of course, you're using, as he said, that it's inhumane. It's inhumane you're thinking about an 11-month-old. What does he have anything to do with this? And you see the condition that some of these other hostages have come home in. How do you even take care of a 10- or 11-month-old in tunnels for over 50 days. No, it's absolutely horrific. And other members of the family saying very clearly, we worry that they are using these children as some sort of a trophy in this moment. The fact is said, too, that we're hearing from this family and they're pleading directly with President Biden, wanting to see more from the Biden administration. You know, Phil has had some reporting on this, but behind the scenes there, they're working really hard, yeah. and specifically on American hostages. How much does that push come from the administration, specifically in a case like this? I think we're going to see a big push because you're seeing those increasing costs for Biden. And Biden has been kind of steadfast, particularly in the work to get those hostages back, where we're seeing the political pressure is really on the more aid front. And when we think about the kind of generational divide, I think about the CNN polling that came out recently that showed a six point split between Democrats uh, under 35 and their support of Biden in terms of uh, giving aid to Israel rather than Democrats who are over 75. You see that bigger split when it comes to like foreign aid packages and, and the push for a ceasefire. But there is no split when it comes to the kind of hostage release. Mm -hmm. I think you see a kind of universal public call for that. And you see the administration really responding forcefully and really saying that that's where they're showing the leadership. You know, even when we think about the kind of political nature of this, which obviously, to your point, Phil, is secondary to the personal. Uh, I think this is where Biden is going to show try to point to his experience as a plus. You know, we see the downsides of age and, and kind of the political back and forth. But this is a place where he is uniquely suited to you to lean on that leadership. And I think the hostages is going to be a place where you see the administration do that. And, and to that point, Josh, part of that uh, experience is keeping a lot of these discussions behind closed doors, mm -hmm. quiet, the dozen, more than a dozen calls with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, the Emir, Emir Qatar, uh, President al-Sisi in Egypt. And to some degree, I think the administration feels like they're not getting credit for the fact that there's in the middle of a truce, that there have been hostage releases, and that there's been a surge of humanitarian aid. Do you think that's fair, or do you think that there were other things they should be doing here? Well, I mean, I, I think I think it's fair to give them credit for it. I think that, you know, the I, I'm sure that the I mean, the, the, the president and the administration didn't create this situation. I think that they feel overall that basically this external event happened and it's caused this big domestic political problem for them and that there's very little that they can do about that, given the way that it splits the Democratic Party. And I think that's true. Obviously, it's true that, that the hostage releases are more favorable 
story than pretty much anything we've seen out of there for several weeks going at this point. Um, but as, as you note, the nature of this stuff is that it has to be behind closed doors, and it can it's never completely clear from the outside exactly who it was that drove whatever diplomatic outcome we got. So I think it's, you know, it's hard to prove exactly the extent to which the U.S. was a prime mover behind these, you know, multi-party conversations. Josh, instead, Bianca, stay with us. Uh, much more to discuss in just a moment. Well, international mediators pushing for a longer break in the fighting as the truce enters its final day in, in the war between Israel and Hamas. The foreign ministry of Qatar has played a central role in mediating, the, mediating these negotiations. They're going to join us next. Also breaking overnight, a U.S. military Osprey plane crashing off the coast of Japan. What Japan's Coast Guard is saying about the crash, that's next. As the truce here in Gaza and between Israel and Hamas enters its final day, international mediators are now pushing for an even longer break in the fighting. A source tells CNN that Israel, the U.S., Qatar and Egypt are all working towards extending the pause to get more hostages out of Gaza. The expectation is that if everything goes well today, Hamas could actually produce an additional list of hostages for tomorrow and also have this pause potentially be extended for at least another 24 hours for someone who knows very well what could be going on in the next 24 hours. Joining us now is Dr. Majid Al-Ansari, who is the spokesperson for the Foreign Ministry of Qatar, which has played a central role in mediating these negotiations. And good morning, sir, and thank you, thank you for being here. Given this truce is set to expire less than 24 hours from now, do you believe that it will be extended and for how long? Good morning, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. Of course, we are right now in the middle of these negotiations, as you might uh, imagine. Our uh, teams on uh, on the ground, whether they be in Tel Aviv or Rafah uh, here in uh, in Doha, in the operations room, are uh, working with uh, all sides to ensure we get all the information in real time. While at the same time, we are working on the release for today, which is, uh, as your uh, report rightly mentions, the last day of the extension of the uh, truce. We are hopeful that within a couple of hours, we would have the release of the final uh, batch, but also we'll be able to announce an extension. We are working on uh, an, uh, an extension that would be guaranteed by the same provision that uh, guaranteed the uh, previous two, uh, two days, which is that every day we'd have to include at least 10 hostages uh, coming out and 30 hostages, uh, 30 sorry, prisoners from the Israeli uh, prisons. And, uh, and we are very, uh, we're very optimistic that we would have good news to share today. Okay, so you do expect that an extension with the same parameters that are in place right now will be announced once this sixth group of hostages has been released. Is that right? We are optimistic that we will be able to make that announcement during the uh, the day. Obviously, these are okay. ongoing negotiations. Our negotiators are working right now, so we hope that uh, within a couple of hours we would have more news on that. Okay, and for the rest of the hostages that are still being held, has Hamas been able to provide uh, an update on their status and their location? Do they know where all of the hostages who are still in Gaza are right now? Well, Caitlin, the way this works is that every day we get the lists from uh, both sides, so we can't go beyond that list when it comes to confirming information. Obviously, we don't have people on the ground. We get the information on the hostages from, uh, from Hamas day by day according to the list agreed. Uh, between both sides. So what we are uh, quite sure of right now is that uh, there is very positive news regarding uh, the availability of other hostages that can be released in the next uh, couple of days, but we don't have any information regarding the full number of hostages or their status at the moment. 
Well, I ask because Jake Sullivan, who is, as you know, President Biden's national security advisor, said that they believed on day four they were going to get an update on the rest of the hostages, how they're doing from Hamas. We have yet to see that. To see that, has Hamas given any kind of update? Why, and if not, why have they not given that update that the U.S. was clearly expecting to happen? As you might imagine, as I said, it's an ongoing uh, negotiation right now. I can't comment on the details of what's happening in the negotiating room at uh, at the moment, but it is happening in a positive in, uh, environment, and it fills us with hope that we will be able to announce uh, something positive by the end of the day. But if part of the agreement already that was agreed to date last week was that the Red Cross could go in to check on these hostages, why has Hamas not let the Red Cross into Gaza yet to, to fulfill that part of the agreement that they're a party to? The operations room here in, uh, in Doha is uh, coordinating between the uh, Red Cross and both parties of, uh, of the conflict. Our negotiators have been working around the clock to make sure that these exchanges happen in a positive environment. Obviously, we are talking about the war zone, the situation in, uh, in Gaza, as all of you have seen in your reports, have uh, shown very clearly, is uh, that of a war zone with a lot of complications on the ground, a lot of logistical complications. Uh, while I can't comment on the actual agreements uh, language uh, and uh, the commitments that uh, that were written into that language, what I can tell you is that uh, the, the agreement stands and that it is going in, uh, in a positive environment, and that is what led to the extension of these two days and hopefully to another extension. Okay, well, I think I mean, it is part of the agreement, and I think there are major questions from, from the families whose loved ones have not gotten out about why the Red Cross hasn't been allowed in yet. I, I didn't hear an answer there, but I do want to ask you because there were multiple officials in Doha yesterday talking about what the future of this agreement could look like. Are you negotiating a deal that would include the negotiations for the release of men and even potentially IDF soldiers as the next option here? As uh, you might heard before, we have prioritized negotiations to start with those who are most at risk within the within the hostages, starting with women and children, and then civilian men moving towards uh, soldiers in uh, in captivity at uh, at the moment. We are talking to both sides now in parallel discussions regarding first. Uh, focusing on compartmentalizing this uh, this negotiation and getting those who are most at risk out uh, first. Our negotiations regarding women and children take paramount now uh, position within the uh, the discussion. But obviously, we are moving towards uh, civilian men being released and then having the longer discussions over the soldiers. I think there is also a parallel line of discussion over thinking how we can reach a sustainable uh, truth to have longer discussions over the release of all hostages. Okay, so there are those discussions underway. Have there been talks about a longer-term ceasefire that would that would end the conflict altogether? Perhaps if if Hamas were to release all of the hostages. Since uh, day one of this conflict, our priority was to get uh, an end to to the hostilities, to get a ceasefire, and to get both parties to uh, to agree. However, we are working with what we have. So the discussions started. Uh, with a humanitarian pause first for four days and now extension for two days has ended and we are working towards, or it's about to end and we are working towards another extension. But uh, parallel to that, we, all, we are always having discussion on how we can reach uh, a situation where we can have a longer uh, truce and that truce could lead to a, a ceasefire within uh, a longer and more robust negotiation over uh, the holistic issue, uh, not only of the hostages, but of the situation uh, as a whole. I, I can't confirm now 
that we have any uh, any developments on that front, but I can tell you it's an ongoing discussion. And as we speak right now, our negotiators are working on that. Okay, so it's still underway, no agreement yet. Uh, last question on what we're expecting to see today. Do you believe that Americans, you've seen the list, are Americans on this list of who's getting released today? Again, I'm sorry, I can't comment on the details of uh, this information. As you know, our paramount importance right now that we lay is on the safety and the security of the hostages and on the success of the release that will take place uh, today and the further uh, negotiations. I can't uh, comment on the names of these individuals that will be released today, but I can confirm that the release is going to happen in a couple of hours and that it, the, 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 the things on the ground that are supposed to happen are happening and we are hopeful that we are going to have a good announcement about the, the hospitals being released in the next couple of hours. I understand you can't name names, but can you say if there are Americans on the list? I can't comment on that right now for the safety of the hostages and for the success of the exchange today. Dr. Majid Al-Ansari, as always, thank you for your time uh, as a crucial role that Qatar is playing in these talks. Phil, Erica, uh, you heard him there. Obviously, they have been central to all of all of the discussions that are happening yesterday. Today, he says that they do believe that they're hopeful that once we get through the release of the sixth set of hostages, which is set to happen in just a few hours from now, that then they will potentially be able to announce an extension to this temporary truce. He says right now that's going to have the same parameters that you're seeing in place right now. That's men, or excuse me, that's women and children, but says there are ongoing discussions about potentially including men in that going forward. We'll see, of course, uh, once they get through the women and children, which Israel has made clear, they want to see those hostages released first before they agree to another potential extension here. Yeah, absolutely. No Notable ease. optimism about a, about a potential extension, no question about that. Uh, Caitlin, thank you. Well, Mark Cuban selling his uh, Dallas Mavericks. We'll take a look at that record deal. And today is the season two premiere of Anderson Cooper, Anderson Cooper's All There Is podcast. He's going to be live for us with a preview of what can we what we can expect, and that includes the president. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Here are our five things to know for this Wednesday, November 29th. Breaking overnight, at least one person was killed after a U.S. military Osprey aircraft carrying six people crashed off the coast of Japan's Yokoshima Island. The extended truce between Israel and Hamas is now in its sixth, possibly final day. Talks so are currently underway to extend that truce further. And business mogul Mark Cuban reportedly selling the majority stake of his Dallas Mavericks for a whopping $3.5 billion. He will, however, remain in control of the team's operations. A vote to expel George Santos from Congress now delayed until Thursday. Santos says he expected the vote to pass, but won't resign. And a private family funeral will be held today for former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Her son, Chip, says she was the most beautiful woman we ever met and pretty to look at, too. That's five things to know for this morning. Don't forget to download the Five Things podcast. Uh, well, the latest season of All There Is, Anderson Cooper's podcast, tackles the issue of grief. It is a subject that is deeply personal to him. In the first season, Anderson opened up about losing his mom, his dad, his brother, and the impact that had it on him, speaking with comedians, poets, filmmakers, and musicians about how they have dealt 
with the loss of their loved ones. In the second season, which is out now, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into Anderson's personal journey with grief, and it includes conversations with a number of different guests, among them President Biden. And Anderson's here with that this morning. This is it is such a beautiful podcast. And I would say to a person of everyone I know who has listened to it, they have been so touched and it has inspired them so much to talk more about grief. Yeah, I mean, it's something we don't really talk much about and it's difficult to talk about. I certainly haven't talked about it much in my life. Um, but it, you know, the one thing I do know about it and I don't know much about it is just not talking about it makes it worse and, and just adds to the loneliness. I started a podcast about grief while going through boxes of things that belong to my mom and my dad and brother, all of whom have died. And, and the, this idea of not talking about grief, which has sort of been my strategy most of my life, uh, it's hard and it's painful to talk about it, but not talking about it, it adds the loneliness of it. It certainly has for me. Um, as Erica said, the podcast is called All, All There Is. The second season is just out. The first episode of the second season is just out this morning. I didn't think I was going to do another season. But in the last few months, I realized probably for the first time the importance of grieving and talking with others who have lived with and learned from loss. The basement in my house is still filled with boxes of stuff belonging to my mom who died in 2019 and to my dad and brother who died decades ago. Their photographs and letters and notes have been sitting here waiting for me to find the courage to sift through them for nearly a year. I had started to go through the boxes last year during the first season of All There Is, but I had to stop. I found it overwhelming. All this stuff brought up a lot of pain and sadness I'd buried long ago as a kid when my dad, Wyatt Cooper, died, and then again when my brother Carter died by suicide. But it turns out grief doesn't stay buried forever. I have never shared uh, anything like this before. I lost my father when I was 10. I was reminded of that this spring when I started listening to more than a thousand voicemails I'd received during the first season of the podcast. I had to grieve the person that I was. We have to endure it. We have to get through it. It took months, but I listened to all your calls, more than 46 hours of messages, and they moved me profoundly. We lost our son, Brad, eight years ago. I want you to know my son's name, Ian Alexander Lahikainen. I learned the names of your loved ones. I heard your pain and your love, and I don't know how to explain it exactly, but it awakened something inside me. And I realize now, for the first time, that I've never really allowed myself to grieve. And in burying that pain, I've also buried my ability to feel joy. And I don't want to do that any longer. I can't. I want to feel all there is. And so that's why I'm doing another season of this podcast. I need to talk with others living with grief and learn from them how I can too. I think the impulse, at least for me, is just sort of how do I, how do I fix it? How do I manage it? And none of that works with grief. You can't fix it. You can't manage it. You can't push it away. I was at a grocery store feeling like nobody could see me and I was just screaming inside. It felt like this unraveling of our family, like to be the only one left and to have no one I could I could really call and talk to and be like, remember when this happened? In the first episode, I talk with author Frances Weller about what grief can actually do for us in our lives. We're told to buck up, just to get over it, to rise above it, but we're never really taught how to be with it. 
And in the next episode, I'll talk with President Biden at the White House about his grief and how he's come to live with it. I think it's critical people understand that they're always going to be with you. Your mother's in your heart every single day. Your brother, in your heart, you're there they're every single day. And there'll come a time as you can sort of welcome that, that you have that, that you had that, that it was there. There's a lot I don't understand about grief, but I do know that talking about it is the only thing that makes me feel less alone in it. And I hope it does for you as well. The new season of All There Is starts Wednesday, November 29th, wherever you get your podcasts. How did this season, recording this season, change your approach? Um, I mean, I literally, listening to all those voicemails was like a life-changing experience. And I do, I discovered something in a box, uh, an article, an essay my dad wrote 40 years ago titled The Importance of Grieving, and I'd never seen it before. And in it, he writes about what happens to kids who don't grieve. And I realized uh, that's me. And um, so, yeah, it, it's, uh, I sort of had this awakening, I guess it's cheesy to call it that, but just in the last couple of months while listening to those voicemails about just how crucial it is to, you know, no matter how old the, the, the loss is, it doesn't go away unless you face it and sort of learn how to. So that's what I'm trying to do. One of your guests there who said that we're never really taught how to live with it, mm. right? How to live with that grief and you recognizing how important it is to live with it, that, that it is a, a part of you. And that also, I don't know if you find this, but I find personally in my own grief, by recognizing that and keeping it alive, it keeps that, that person, yeah, right? For me, my dad, keeps them alive yeah. and makes them alive for my kids and my family. Yeah. And that is a beautiful way to honor well, that. The, the, my first guest is this uh, psychotherapist and author, Francis Weller, and I, I didn't know him a listener of the podcast sent me his book with a note, a woman named Cynthia, her son John died in 2016. Uh, it's just saying, I hope there's something in this that touches you. And I opened this guy's book and it was really the first grief book I've read and it just blew me away. And so he's the first guest. President Biden is, is the second guest next week. It's, it's beautiful the way you've opened up the conversation, I think for so many Thanks. people. You know, to that point, it, and I know we gotta go, but I get a lot of questions about you from people outside of CNN. Is he as right? pale as, as everyone? Never. Is, no, not at all. Top of, top of the list. <laughs> not at all. Uh, you're, you're reporting either, either with CNN or with 60 Minutes. Uh, you know, your Real Housewives obsession uh, and relationship with Andy Cohen. It, it runs the gamut. I have never seen, I've never experienced so many people connecting so deeply with a journalist's work than on the first season of your podcast. Um, thank you for being here. Please be sure to download the season two premiere of All There Is. It's out today wherever you get your podcasts. Will Nikki Haley getting a billionaire boost her campaign? Will it be enough to topple Trump as the party frontrunner? Harry Anton going to be here breaking down the numbers. Money from the deep pockets of wealthy donors is oxygen for any successful presidential campaign. And Nikki Haley just got a big old dose of it on Tuesday. The Koch-backed group Americans for Prosperity announcing it is backing the former South Carolina governor's bid for the White House. So, of course, the big question now, will the endorsement and all the cash actually offer up the momentum that she needs to give Nikki Haley a real shot at overtaking Donald Trump? The man with the answers, Harry Enten. No pressure, Harry, but what do you got? I mean, look, I think a lot of people might say, OK, what the heck are the Koch brothers thinking? If you look at the national polls, look how far back Nikki Haley is. She's at just 10 percent. Donald Trump at 61 percent. She's not even in second place. Ron DeSantis is at 17 percent. 
And you might say, okay, this might just be emblematic of wealthier folks not liking Donald Trump nearly as much as you see in our latest CNN poll, incomes of 150,000 plus. You see Donald Trump is at 38%. Nikki Haley is far closer at 21%. So are they just biased in some sort of way? I don't think that's necessarily it, because if you take a look at the polls in Iowa and New Hampshire, this is Trump or choosing Haley. You see, nationally, Trump's ahead by 51. But look at Iowa. Nikki Haley's at 16. Donald Trump's at 43 percent. Or you look at New Hampshire, it's only a 22 point difference. So I think they're looking at the early polls and saying, you know what? Nikki Haley has a real shot of defeating Donald Trump, despite what the national polls are showing. OK, let's do the history then. Does she? What's the precedent here? What is the precedent? Are there any candidates who have come back to win either Iowa or New Hampshire when they were down by 20 plus points at this point? Look at Iowa. George H.W. Bush won there when he was down by 20 plus points. Dick Gephardt in 88. New Hampshire, Gary Hart in 84. Pat Buchanan back in 1996. And here's the other thing that I think you want to take a look at here. Non-Trump voters who have made up their mind the GOP primary. Look at that. Just 24 percent in Iowa just 29 percent New Hampshire. There is this large anti-Trump vote in the GOP primary they think can move around and maybe some money from the Koch brothers might help them move towards the Haley direction. We will be watching. We shall be. Harry, thank you. Thank you. Well, we're seeing our first images of the U.S. military Osprey aircraft that crashed off the coast of Japan. What we know about the six people who were on board. And CNN obtaining a copy of former Congresswoman Liz Cheney's new book, what she reveals about the relationship between Trump and the new House Speaker, that's ahead. Well, CNN has ex- obtained exclusively a copy of former Congresswoman Liz Cheney's new book, Oath and Honor, ahead of its December 5th release. In it, Cheney recounts a conversation with former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy after he visited Trump's Florida home six weeks after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. She asked, Mar-a-Lago, what the hell, Kevin? She says McCarthy responded, They're really worried Trump's not eating, so they asked me to come see him. Cheney said, what, you went to Mar-a-Lago because Trump's not eating? And McCarthy replied, yeah, he's really depressed. On that note, Bianca, Estad, and Josh are back with us. I'm interested, Josh, we've heard Liz Cheney's been so consistent uh, on her views of this, even before she joined the January 6th committee, certainly in the wake of it, now out of Congress. Where do you think this book lands in terms of impact as we head into a year to the election? I mean, you know, I think that I think Liz Cheney has had a lot of impact. And I think that, you know, the, what what she did in the lead up to the 2022 elections and what Democrats basically, you know, uh, to a certain extent, sat back and allowed her to lead in a lot of the presentation on the January 6th committee. I think it was effective in peeling off a small but crucial uh, slice of, of traditionally Republican voters who, like Liz Cheney, were very alienated by the president's actions around January 6th. I don't know that the, the book additionally moves the needle beyond that, but I think that issue is going to continue to matter in 2024. I think you saw that in a lot of these Senate races in 2022 when you had candidates who really embraced the election denier position who stood with the, the riots and the efforts to, to, you know, to overturn the 2020 election. That is an unpopular position, and messaging about that is, is, is one key component of the, of the Democratic campaign strategy for 24, and I think some of the messages that are in here will again be a part of that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Instead, uh, in terms of Democratic coalitions, that, that was one of them, and certainly in 22, um, a critical coalition there's a lot of concern about uh, is black voters. It is kind of the bedrock yep. at this point in time. Uh, you went home for Thanksgiving where people say, don't talk about politics. And you were like, hold my beer. I'm talking with everybody about politics. Uh, explain, because your new podcast is, is excellent. Thank you. Uh, I mean, this was really fun to do. I mean, it was done out of this kind of premise. You know, when we look back uh, from the 2022 midterms, black turnout was one of the Democrats' weakest points. 
And then we had in the last couple of weeks the New York Times-Siena poll, which also showed a real sea change in terms of black voters interested in maybe not dropping off from Democrats or supporting Trump over Biden. That led me to think, you know, might as well convene a focus group I know pretty well, be my family and friends, get around folks around the Thanksgiving table and try to get deeper under the polls to understand kind of why this is happening. So I leaned on kind of folks who knew my family. I knew folks from my dad's church. And we got a kind of intergenerational group of black folks together and really just had a Thanksgiving dinner where we talked about all of this stuff. I think a couple things really stuck out to me out of those conversations. The first is I think there's a real uh, a sense of shock that we're back here again. And I think people understand that when it comes to the prospect of Trump in re-election, that's really also true for Biden re-election. People really mention how they saw him as an emergency option in 2020, and they just assumed that there was a kind of implicit pinky promise one term uh, of it all. And they're kind of surprised that we're back to be here again. It was just a sense of like, oh, really? The second thing I think is a generational split that we see across with Biden. You have a younger generation of black voters who are much less kind of tied to the representational aspects. I think Obama and others had a real legacy for and, and are much more distant from the kind of history of civil rights that says you kind of have to vote. And so this group was saying, really, what is this administration doing for me is an open question. They're much more likely to hold war or hold uh, kind of other administration broken promises against them rather than a kind of older group. And the last one we focused on was black men and the kind of a gender split that we see in the data because black men show a lot more interest in voting for President Trump than we have with black women. And you see the kind of uh, concerns that you see across groups, the uh, need for economic empowerment and openness to kind of some Republican ideas. And we also have to say some uncomfortable topics that the changing language around gender and sexuality has made some folks uncomfortable because particularly we're talking about straight black men who are in this group. And so, you know, I think that a lot of things came up in that discussion that shows the kind of ways that masculinity and kind of changing gender norms and language are kind of uh, shifting the democratic coalition. But I think it was really just a fun time because we got to really get deeper under the why, though we see those numbers shift. And it's a big, big area of concern uh, when we think about uh, next year in 2024. It's all fascinating um, and, and definitely one that deserves further conversation, right, especially as we head into 2024. I do want to turn back to Israel for just a moment. Um, Biana, I was struck by your interview yesterday with um, with Israel's first lady. What you, were, what you were really diving into and touching on, which you have made a focal point on your show as well, is this question of why we're not hearing from more human rights organizations, specifically those created to protect the rights of women, in response to what we're hearing in terms of these allegations of sexual violence, of rape that was used against Israeli women in this terror attack. What did she tell you? Yeah, listen, she too was shocked when these reports were first coming out and she uh, didn't really comprehend just the complexity involved in the investigation and what ultimately experts said was premeditated in the sexual violence, the sexual assaults, the rapes perpetrated by Hamas against Israeli women. And as you said, it's been seven weeks now, and there is a lot of frustration among Israeli women going up to the first lady of the country. Where are the women's rights groups? Where is UN Women? Where are these organizations who stand for the protection of women, specifically when it comes to war crimes? Uh, and we've seen silence. And she said this is just not acceptable. It's not acceptable for Israeli women, but it's not acceptable because it sets a precedent mm -hmm. for women around the world. So we heard from a U.N. official who said a lot of things but didn't condemn Hamas in um, the interview I conducted yesterday. We'll continue to be following this very important story. Though. Yeah, we will as well. It was a great interview. Guys, thank you very much, as always. There has been a breakthrough in aviation, the first ever transcontinental flight running on 100% sustainable jet fuel. Sir Richard Branson joins us live on set to discuss the remarkable achievement. That's next.
Virgin 100 clear for takeoff. Thanks for your well wishes. Both engines are running on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. We're ready to go. That was a Virgin Airlines Boeing 787 taking off from London yesterday on the first transatlantic flight operated by a commercial airline using 100% sustainable jet fuel. Now, Virgin says Tuesday's test flight used 70 tons of clean fuel, mostly made from waste cooking oils and animal fat, reducing emissions by 70%. The U.S. Energy Department says sustainable aviation fuel, known as SAF, can potentially deliver the same performance as traditional jet fuel, but at a fraction of the greenhouse gas emissions. There was no cargo, there were no paying customers aboard that demonstration flight, but Virgin Airlines founder Sir Richard Branson was on that flight, and he joins us now. Uh, safe to say you were pretty happy with your flight over here to um, New York. My, I, was home, I was home with my daughter, so um, I'm very pleased to say it worked. When, when, when someone hears this, I have to say the first thing that I thought of was, is this sort of the equivalent of what we heard a few years ago of, I'm going to get the extra French fry oil and I'm going to use it in my diesel car. But we're doing it now for planes? Not, it's not, not so different. Um, I mean, in 2018, we did a flight with 4%. And um, people said it would be absolutely impossible for you, for you ever to be able to uh, have sustainable fuel 100%. And working, working with Boeing and Rolls-Royce um, and the Virgin Atlantic team, uh, yes, yesterday really was a you know, truly historic moment. Um, now, now, now we know it can, be, it, can, it can fly, we could fly, we could have flown to LA, we could have flown to Tokyo, we could have flown anywhere in the world. Um, now it, we just got to get the fuel companies and we got to get entrepreneurs to start making enormous quantities so that um, you know, our planes can fly on it. Um, you know, we also have a cruise company. We would like our cruise company to be able to use it. Um, and, and, and this will be an imp important part in sort of tipping, tipping the world into a clean, a clean energy world. You know, one of your many well-known quotes, you said, the world will always assume something can't be done until you do it. You've got some precedent here, um, I, I think from the past, it was 2005, where you accomplished something people didn't think you could and kind of changed the landscape of things um, with uh, the global flyer. Um, is yeah, that so this, talk about scale here. How do you scale this up to your point about all the entities that need to get involved? Yeah, so um, in, in 2005, um, we argued with Boeing and Airbus that they should build their planes principally with carbon fiber and not heavy, heavy metal. Um, and they weren't sure it could be done. So we, we built a plane called the Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer, which was 100% carbon fiber. It flew nonstop around the world with Steve Fawcett at, at the helm. Um, and afterwards, Boeing and Airbus came. They saw, saw how it got done. And now the plane that we flew on yesterday was about 60 70% carbon fiber. So, um, and most planes now are being built with carbon fiber. And that, that in itself uh, is saving billions, you know, billions of carbon going, going up into the atmosphere. So, um, so now, you know, with, 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 with um, the sustainable aviation fuel, we, we expect the same revolution to happen. I mean, it took, you know, it, it took 15, 20 years you know, to, to get an, enough planes to have made a real difference with, with, um, uh, by, by being built of carbon. Ho hopefully we can speed up the process with, cl with clean energy fuel. It's more expensive right now, the sustainable fuel. That being said, the way I understand it, there isn't really a modification though that needs to be made of the engine. So you can use it in existing planes, yeah, so that's what's so exciting is we, we, we literally, we, we could fly, you know, if, the, if, for instance, America gets ahead of Britain in, you know, making sustainable aviation fuel, 
we, we could, one, in one direction, fill it up with sustainable aviation fuel, while, while, whilst Britain is catching up and you know, making enough sustainable aviation fuel to, to, fly, to fly both ways. So, um, so <clears throat> it's highly, highly adaptable and, 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 and easy to use. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I'm even thinking, you know, we, we, we should really, in order to speed up the process, maybe set up a fuel company ourselves. But um, I, I'm talking, I like when talking, the wheels are turning right <laughs> in front of us. in real time. The demand for this is going to be millions and millions and millions and, of, of, of gallons. And, um, and the, the great thing is the, government's, the government on you know, both sides of the Atlantic, they were all, all with us last night congratulating us, but also saying they, they want to work with us. And... Um, and, um, and, and the, you know, the world in most areas, as far as get, getting to clean energy, there's an exponential growth in, uh, in, in a whole lot of different areas. Right. Um, this was the one area that people thought was going to be impossible. And, and now it looks like aviation can also be fixed. A, a major moment, one of many you've had in your career. So Richard Branson, Thank congratulations. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We're watching much. closely this morning as the final hours of the truce between Israel and Hamas are ticking away. As we speak, negotiators in the White House racing to extend it. Thanks for being with us today. We'll follow all of that. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.